Thank you so much for joining us today on YouTube. If you haven't already, go ahead and click that subscribe button down below so you can stay up to date with all that Church on the Hill has going on. If you haven't already, also follow us on social media, either Instagram or Facebook, both Church on the Hill and our senior pastor, Pastor Adam McKay. Thank you so much for tuning in. Hope you enjoyed the message. Welcome this morning. All of you guys that are online with us, we love you so much. Will you give us a little clap hands in your box there for me, your chat box, all our online folks. We love you dearly. So grateful that you're joining in with us online. And then those of us that are here live today, I'm so grateful to have each and every one of you. We are in a little two-part series that is titled Favored, Not Forgotten. And if you weren't here with us last week or you didn't get to log in last week, let me kind of set the scene and the pace. Um... Years ago, the Lord began to work in me a truth um, through the scriptures, um, and it kind of has become a life message for me. And uh, last week, um, I announced to you guys that I had um, co-written a book with Mr. or Dr. Scott Severi, yeah, to the title, Favored Not Forgotten, and you guys were so gracious and so kind, and uh, we felt like around the Thanksgiving holidays, coming out of the, you know, still kind of in a pandemic, but all the turmoil of 2020, that this life message is critical for right now where we all find ourselves. And the key word in this message is obscurity. And we talked last week about how there is this beautiful process of becoming like Jesus. How many of you love Jesus in the place? Say me. Amen. Come on, raise your hands if you want to be like Jesus. Isn't that right? So that's Christianity is you and I becoming more and more like Jesus and less and less of ourselves. So 2 Corinthians 3 and 18 kind of was our key scripture where it talks about that we're being transformed every day into his likeness. Every day. And really this teaching that I'm going to bring you today and last week is about that transformation process. And that in this process, and as this passage talks about that we go from glory to glory, and most of us as Christians believe that we're supposed to be going from glory to glory, and it looks like this, like, like we used to have these problems, but we should never have those anymore because we've grown out of them, or we've overcome them, or we've, we, we're you know, furthering God. And so when that is not our reality, it begins to shake us a little bit. In fact, I believe that from glory to glory, in other words, we're being transformed from glory to glory more and more in his image, looks more like a cyclical piece where we have these moments of great influence and joy and excitement and then these moments if you will of obscurity or wilderness or dark times and then we come through that and then there's and there's always a progression this way and it's always becoming more like Christ but there's these moments in this whole uh, transformation process that are dark they're difficult and it's in those places that I'm titling obscurity, or I'm calling obscurity, that the real deep things of God happen in our life. That the real pieces of who we are are being transformed into who he is. Are you with me? Say yes. And so last week we talked about, uh, I gave you three big takeaways. Number one, that the wilderness is not punishment. Would you agree with me and say yes and amen to that? And some of you felt like you've been punished. Like, God, why did you abandon me? I went through that multiple times. And the other big takeaway was that every follower of Jesus must undergo obscurity. It's a part of every one of that we see in the, in, the, in, the, in the scriptures, these times of obscurity. We looked at Moses a little bit last week. Uh, you have 40 years in the wilderness prior to ever even going to getting the people of Israel out. We talked about the multiple times that we see in the book of Acts of the apostle Paul going through these times of obscurity. And then we also gave you one last piece, and that is that obscurity is the safe place 
for transformation, which is what I want to hone in as we kind of wrap up this little two-part series and uh, as we kind of you know, dive into this transforming process and you and I becoming like Jesus. And let me just help you. Uh, if, if you ever feel like that your dreams are not coming true, you're probably in obscurity. If you ever have these moments where you've said, you know, I feel like I'm getting further away from the destiny that God has for me, you're probably in obscurity. Uh, another way to maybe identify it is that if you're living in discomfort due to your present assignment, then you're probably in obscurity. Um, uh, or if you find yourself even maybe longing for yesterday, you know, if you've said that, you know, oh, the good old days, you're probably in obscurity. And then that is beautiful and not terrible. And if you can just learn how to walk through it and let it do what it's supposed to do, because the whole process is transforming us into his likeness. I asked earlier, how many of you want to be like Jesus? And you all said, yes, that's a great sermon, yes to, until we're walking through it. And to become like Jesus means I need to die to what Adam is. I need to die to what I valued being raised in this old wicked world system. I need to die to the systemic sinfulness of who I am so that I can become more like Jesus. Are you with me? Say yes. And it's really in that obscurity that God really begins to work on us. And so our key scripture for today is found in Philippians chapter 3 and verse 12. Turn there quickly in your Bibles with me. Philippians chapter 3 and verse 12. The Apostle Paul is talking about this coming into Christ's likeness. He's talking about in this passage in Philippians about how he wants to be like Christ and what that looks like. And as a mature Christian, look what he writes, which is Bible. Verse 12, not that I've already obtained all this or have already been made perfect, but I press on to take a hold of that which Christ Jesus took a hold of me. Brothers, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining towards what is ahead. Let's look at this for just a moment. In verse 12, he says, not that I've already obtained this. I've not, I've not obtained perfection. So some of you had this concept, the moment I came to Christ, that it's all going to just go away. I'll never want to smoke weed a day in my life again. And that did not happen, did it? And the moment I become a Christian, the moment I go down to that altar and I cry out to God, oh God, forgive me. Somehow you had maybe in, this, in, in your mind that you would never hate again. That you would supernaturally not remember the perversion of the past, the wickedness of the past. It would just all go away. It is forgiven in that moment. It is taken. The Bible says that he takes our sin and he throws it as far as the east is to the west. But friend, you and I are still being transformed into his image. And we begin a process of transformation upon salvation. Are you there? Say yes. And so he says, not that I've already obtained it. Now this man is multiple years into his Christianity. This is the Apostle Paul saying, not that I've obtained it yet, I've not gotten there. He says, but what I do is I press on to take hold of what? To take a hold of what? What's he trying to take a hold of? Prosperity? What's he trying to take a hold of? Trying to take a hold of uh, a salvation? He's already saved. Uh, baptism of the Holy Spirit. He's already baptized. What is he trying to take hold of? He's trying to take a hold of this transformation process of being like Jesus. He says, I keep pressing because I'm still not there. I still don't look like Jesus over here. I still don't act like Jesus over here. So I just keep on pressing. I keep on pressing. I keep pressing forward. So many times I find that we get in our Christian walk and we go, good enough is good enough. Wow. And we start going, well, at least I'm not that anymore. Yeah, you're not that anymore, but you're still mean. 
You're not that anymore, and you do have faith over here, but you have no faith over here. You, oh, man, you are really kind at church, but boy, when you post, you're a mean person. See, I, I'm still not liking, and I, I am, Paul said, I'm a chief amongst us. He said, I'm not quite gotten there. And he goes, I get it. In this journey called Christianity, there's this transformation process until I look like Jesus. And guys, I'm convinced in my own personal life that I probably will not get there until the day I cross on over into heaven. Until that point, every day is a pressing forward. Every day is a looking at myself going, oh my goodness, that don't look like Jesus. See, we keep looking at everybody else and going, well, I'm better than them. I'm better than them. No, no, that's not the point. The point is, do I look like Jesus yet? And I'm not like Jesus in that yet. So Lord, keep moving in me. Keep confirming in me. Keep transforming me. And that process has these beautiful moments where it's all beautiful. And then the moments where it's like, ah, I hate everything in life. Obscurity. Because it's that you don't want to be operated on in front of everybody, do you? So it's in these times that you feel like are dark times. It's in these times where you feel like you're away from the calling and the beauty of all the great things that God has promised you. You say, where are they? They're not anywhere. That's because you're in obscurity, and obscurity is beautiful because that means that's a beautiful, safe place to be transformed. Are you there? Say yes. Are you, are you really with me? Say yes. And he says, and so what I do is I forget what is upon, behind. Forgetting what is behind. I've heard preachers preach this, and they misappropriate this. They say, forgetting your past, forgetting your failures. That's not what the Apostle Paul's talking about. If you go back and read the whole passage, he's talking about his trophies. He's talking about his successes. He's talking about how he had accomplished this and accomplished this. He says, I forget all that. Because can I tell you one of the critical points of why many of us are not receiving our transformation properly is because we keep looking back to what we used to have. And so when we get into obscurity, we go, I don't have what I used to have, so something's wrong. God must be punishing me. He's not punishing you. He's not forgotten you. He's actually favored you. And so the person who was the wonderful college professor who's now you know, teaching at the elementary school is looking around going, I used to be this and I used to be that. Actually, this is beautiful. This is a part of the process to work something out of you and to work something in you. And you don't, if you don't get that, then you'll keep comparing back and forth. He says, I don't even compare myself anymore to all the great trophies because I used to have a house and I used to have this and I used to be this and now they're trying to kill me every city I go into. Now I don't even have a place to live. Now I'm, I'm so intense and there ain't no revival. I thought I was supposed to be revivals, and I'm sitting around so intense. And he says, forgetting what is behind, I press. I pre-. And he actually uses these next words. He says, straining towards what is ahead. Straining. Come on, anybody here work out? Give me your little workout noise when you're straining. Ugh, come on, everybody help me. Ah, right? That's why I can't stand to watch tennis. Because tennis is always, oh. Uh, I'm like, after about 10 minutes, I'm like, would somebody pass something finally? I mean, that sounds terrible. I mean, because they're grunting, because they're straining, they're getting after it. And what happens many times is we want safety and comfort. What we need is strain and pressing forward into his likeness. If you're not pressing forward into his likeness, if you've not identified something that God is working out of you and working in you, then friend, you've stopped pressing and you've stopped being transformed. And so you'll get stuck in obscurity and be mad at God. And God loves you so much that he's like, I cannot move you forward until we get this right. Because I love you so much. Are you still with me? Say yes. So let me kind of compare this to the life of David. King David, uh, the man who wrote most of your Psalms, the book of Psalms, man after God's own heart, he is one of the great heroes in the Holy Scriptures. And David was a, just a shepherd boy. In fact, 
uh, they lived in tribal life in those days. And his tribe was the lowest of all the tribes. You talk about a tier system and which group of people, you know, have a, you know, more you know, opportunity and advancement. His was the lowest of the lowest. And it's in a time where Israel wanted a king. So God let him have a king. Saul was the first king of Israel. And God said, okay, have a king. But Saul turned his heart away from the father. And he began to disobey God. And so God decided, I'm getting rid of this joker. I'm going to get me someone else. And so he spoke to the prophet Samuel. And for sake of time, I'm going to tell you what 1 Samuel chapter 16 all the way through chapter 31 says. Would that be all right? Instead of reading that to you today, would you, would you, somebody say thank you, pastor. I sure appreciate that. You're welcome. And so instead of, instead of Saul getting to have this wonderful heritage of being a great king of Israel, he basically was rejected by the, by the Lord. And the Lord sent Samuel, the prophet, to go anoint someone else to be king. And he sent him to the house of Jesse. And he said, he did this covertly. He said, Samuel, there's a son that Jesse has who's going to be the next king that has my heart. And so he comes to Jesse privately and he says, I need to see all your boys. God wants me to anoint one of them as the next king of Israel. He says, all right. So he brings them all out. Boy, his first son probably is that strapping, you know, CEO type, successful. And um, these men, many of them are already have their own families. But in the way they lived tribally in those days, they would live still together somewhat. And so that first boy comes. And, and Samuel looks at him and says, man, God doesn't say, nah, not him. He goes through all of these boys. I mean, probably one the great athlete, the great musician, the great, you know, c- c- creative person, blah, blah, blah. And finally, Samuel says, is this all you got? He goes, Jesse said, I got, I got the little runt out in the field doing the sheep work. And you understand, to watch sheep, was, it was paramount to cleaning toilets. It's the low end of the, of, of the job pool. It was, it was the lowest of the lowest. David, meanwhile, is out there as a young man embracing what's been given him. Finding God in the midst of the worthless job of watching sheep. He had a heart after God. He says, well, call him in. And he calls him in. And the moment that Samuel sees him, God says, this is the one. In 1 Samuel chapter 16, verse 12, it says, And the Lord said, rise and anoint him. He is the one. So Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the presence of his brothers. And from that day on, the spirit of the Lord came upon David in what? In power. So here's this 16-year-old who's been out there just minding his own business, actually probably 14 or 15 years old, and God calls him, and the prophet, now this, this would be like, I mean, you got to understand, this would be like Billy Graham showing up at your house, or Bishop Jakes, or somebody like that, and saying, I need to see all your children. God says one of them is going to be the next president of the United States. I'm here to lay hands on them. Can you imagine all your other kids going, what? Why him and not me? He anoints him. And then they have to keep it top secret so that Saul doesn't kill him. If you'll keep reading on through these chapters, you'll find then there's this moment with Goliath. Most of you saw the History Channel's version of that. 
And so, and so he goes just to see his brothers in the middle of war. He ends up killing Goliath. All of a sudden, Saul is like, who is this little dude, man? Who is this kid? He ends up hiring him, puts him on staff uh, there in the, in the palace. David begins playing music for him to calm all the demons inside of him. Somewhere in the process of that, David rises and, and, and into a position of authority. And, and, and David literally becomes the chief of the armies of Israel. He becomes like the general. He's a young man. He's whooping everybody. And the favor of God's on him. And Saul begins to recognize the anointing's not on me anymore, but it's on this kid. And he begins to hate him. He ends up marrying Saul's daughter, which would kind of alliance the families together with Saul and David's family. And even in the midst of that, Saul begins to hate him. And he takes his spear in his hand and he tries to kill David. Multiple times he tries to assassinate this young man. So in the last moment that this happens, David begins to flee for his life and he becomes an enemy of the state. Saul sends out FBI reports all over the place. This guy is wanted. He becomes the most wanted man in Israel. They want him dead. And he begins to flee for his life. And he begins to live in caves. He's constantly running. He gets a group of discontented folks around him. And they kind of are the outcasts and the, and the folks that have done, you know, probably still owe the government some money from ta taxes and stuff like that. And so they're running with him and they're hiding in caves. And for 22 years, David has been anointed years earlier, and for 22 years, Saul is chasing him, trying to kill him. He never has the moment that's promised him. For 22 years, he's running. He's in obscurity. He's in the wilderness. He's in a dark place. Can I tell you what God's doing? In the midst of all that, God's doing something inside of him. He's causing him to love people in a way that he never loved them before. He's causing him to have faith in a way that he never had faith before, because if he doesn't go through the 22 years of wilderness experience, if he doesn't have obscurity for 22 years, then the moment he sits on that throne, he's not the man that God needs him to be to accomplish what God needs him to accomplish. We look at obscurity, we look at dark times, and we say, it's not right, it's not fair, I don't like it, and God's saying, you don't understand. One day, the moment will come, and if you haven't become who I need you to become, then I can't give you what I promised to give you. If you don't let me do in you what I need to do in you, some of you saying, I was when I was a little kid, they prophesied over me that I would lay hands on people and they would get healed. That is awesome. He said, but I'm still still not there and I don't understand what happened I'll tell you what happened you got stuck in obscurity and you didn't learn what you needed to learn and didn't become like Jesus in that area and so he can't put you up there in front of everybody getting people healed because all you'll do is crash it and he loves you too much to let that happen because we're going from glory to glory obtaining to his likeness somehow the apostle Paul said and to obtain to his likeness and the power of his resurrection to understand who he is and to be like him that's my goal in life this is the goal of the believer. This is what this process of transformation looks like. And they have these moments of dark times. They're beautiful. They're operative. That God is doing great things. And then there are moments of display. And then there are moments where he's got to take you back out of that. And he's got to do something fresh and new inside of you. And then he takes you and he puts you on display. And that's from glory to glory to glory to glory. And when we get in these moments, we hate them. And we say, it's not right. And it's not fair. Come on, Mansfield Campus. I'm speaking to you. God is saying to you and I, embrace the moments of obscurity. Because I want to make you the king that I promised you. But you got to go for, through 22 years, David, of being chased and misappropriated and lied about and being the man and being Israel's most wanted. And he didn't do anything wrong. All he did was write. And there was this moment in the midst of all of that where David began to write songs. He said, God, I hate my life, but I love you. And though everyone abandons me, I know that you will not abandon me.
Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I'll fear no evil. Because your rod, whop, whop, whop. That's what your, your spoon, your wooden spoon. Sorry, I know this generation don't whoop anymore anyway. But your belt, it guides me. Your staff of comfort takes a hold to me. You prepare a table of comfort and feasting in the presence of all my enemies. They're all standing around gnarling, ready to kill me, and you protect me. You feed me in the midst of that. You put me in a safe place. Come on, Psalms 23. Y'all know that song? And so I want to give you four things to press towards in your obscurity moments. Four things. Write these down. They'll change your life. They've changed my life. This is from depths of life living for Jesus in 30 years. This is the research and scripture that I found. Four things that obscurity should help you transform in if you'll press towards them. Number one, the first thing you should, that you should press for in your times of obscurity is a deepening of your faith. A deepening of your faith. Write that down. A deepening of your faith. Because Hebrews 11.6 says, and without faith, it is impossible to please God. Without faith, it's what? Impossible. Say it out loud. Without faith, it's what? Come on, somebody write it in the chat box so that everybody sees it. It's what? It's impossible to please God. It's impossible without faith. We all lack faith in areas. I'm going to just tell you that right now. We all have an opportunity to grow in our faith in areas. Obscurity gives us the opportunity to deepen our faith in areas. I'll tell you why. Because in obscurity, you have to face your fears. How do you deepen your faith? You face, you face your fears. When the Lord sent me into obscurity, even in the birth of this church, there were these moments that I began to have these images in my mind of failure. See, I had a deep-rooted fear of failure. I had a deep-rooted fear of not accomplishing great things for God. Why? Because ever since I was a little kid, every person that would come to our church would stop and say, see that young man back there? Stand up, son. God says he's going to use you to change the world. That you're going to be a revivalist. You're going to speak to millions. You're going to see millions saved and delivered and set free in miracles. A revivalist healing. And so because that imagery was in my mind, that prophetic piece, it was, I constantly lived in fear of failing that prophecy. I lived in fear of never amounting to anything great. We had come out of poverty, our family. Uh, we, had, we didn't have much of nothing. And so I had this thing inside of me that, that, that uh, I would strive. I would outwork everybody. I would outtry everybody. I would out uh, uh, sustain everybody because I knew that a work ethic would get you there. And I would work, 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 work. And it became a works mentality in my Christianity. Work for God's approval. I'll pray everybody. I'll fast everybody. Therefore, I should get God's favor more than anybody else. And I'm telling you, I lived years with always being favored, always being favored. And the moment that I perceived that I was not favored anymore because he took me into obscurity was the moment every part of my identity began to be shaken. And I thought, who am I? God has abandoned me. I've got this little church. Nobody's coming to it. I've spoken to tens of thousands and thousands and thousands are getting saved every year in my traveling ministry. I'm running this pretty successful Bible school man, and now here I am, left all that behind. We don't even have, we're driving old beat up cars, whereas before, you know, I was one of the heroes in the faith. All these people were following me on social media, and nobody even cares anymore. I was in obscurity, and I'm telling you, I had to face my fear of failure, and it deepened my faith in God. 
Because let me tell you who I am now after facing that thing. I don't really care what anybody thinks. Jesus is Lord, and all I'm going to do is wake up every day and make his name great. That had to ha happen inside of me that I did not look at myself. and comp I was doing what the Apostle Paul said, forgetting what is behind. I wasn't forgetting what is behind. I kept looking at it going, but I used to have this, and now I got this. I used to be this, but now I don't have that anymore. I had to face my fear of failure, and it deepened my faith. Can I tell you something else that will deepen your faith? Everybody say yes. Yeah. Tell us, Pastor. I'll tell you something else that will deepen your faith, and that is when you, get, uh, when you get delivered from the approval of men. When you get delivered from the approval of men. We all have inside of us a little desire for everyone to like us. Some of us have that, that thing that goes back to our childhood, a dad that never did give us his favor, or mom who never did show us you know, any kind of real love and empathy towards the things that we went through. And so as a result, we have this striving in us to, let, to have people approve us and, and to be approved by people. And some of us have said, you know what, I don't even care. So you've swung the other way, and you're mean and angry because you never could get people's approval. And then some of us have swung the other way, and we just constantly want people to like us, and we want people to, to agree with us, and we want to be able to be something valuable, you know, and that kind of thing. And friend, can I tell you something? The Bible calls it the love of the world. And it says, and you can't love the world and love God. And so the reason why the church is so anemic right now is because we want the world to like us so much that we don't stand for what Jesus stood for. And we can't stand what Jesus stood for when we want all the world and all the wickedness of this world to like us and to approve us and say that we're good and that the church is good. Friend, the, the world will never love the church. It cannot love the church. It will not love the church. All it can do is persecute the church, and it's coming. So you better get ready if you weren't ready. And so if you have this love of the world and this desire to be approved by everyone, else you will not be able to stand and that's why your faith is so weak and that's why God cannot promote you until you get that out so he brings you into obscurity to work this out to have a deep love for God when they, when when Moses fled out into the wilderness it was because he wanted all of Israel to love him because he stood up for them and they turned on him and then he was like whoa they turned on me now Egypt's angry at me so I've got to go flee and God had to work that out of him so that he could stand in front of Pharaoh and say let God's people go. I don't care if you like me or not. God said, let God's people go. And he could stand in front of Israel and say, I'm taking you out into the wilderness, whether you like it or not, because God said. That was a deepening of his faith that happened for 40 years. How many years will it take to deepen your faith when it comes to the love of what everybody thinks about you, to the love of the approval of this world? How many years are you going to have to go through obscurity until you get that right? Lord, deepen our faith. Are you with me? Say yes. There's a second thing that you and I need to press towards in obscurity, and that is a developing of your character and integrity. A developing of your character and integrity. Proverbs 11.3, the integrity of the upright guides them, but the unfaithful are destroyed by their duplicity. How many more national leaders do we have to have that lack character and integrity before somebody wakes up and says, no? How many, how many, I mean, how frustrated are you and I that is that the best we got? How, how, I, how, how many, when did integrity and character lose its sexiness? When, when did men and women of leadership decide it was easier and better to take shortcuts, tell half-truths, to live for their own gain? Oh, I remember an older generation that was full of character and integrity, that their yes was yes and their no was no. And when they said they were going to show up, they showed up. And when they said this is how it was, that's how it was. There was no manipulation in it. I remember 
a generation of those old pastors that didn't go sleeping with other women that weren't their wives. I remember that generation. When did character and integrity become something that we no longer valued? Because the Bible values it. Can I tell you what obscurity does? It gives you the opportunity. It gives you the opportunity to develop character and integrity. Because nobody cares about you when you're in obscurity. So that's your moment to learn to let your yes be yes and your no be no. I have a close friend, phenomenal man of God. And one of his family members told him that one of the outlining family members had been healed. And so he took that for what it was. And as he ministered around the world, he told that story. God's power to heal. I've got a such and such that got healed. I've got a, you know, outskirts family member that got healed. God did this, God. That family member that supposedly got healed had a trouble believing in God. And when they heard this family member of theirs preaching in front of thousands, talking about how they would gotten healed, and they had not gotten healed, they began to come against this great minister. This great minister was pure in heart, pure in motive. But he lacked in that moment character and integrity to go really research to see if that really happened. And so now his name, his good name, had lost credibility. He called me when it happened. He said, what do I do? I said, you get in the car and you drive six hours to that distant family member that you barely know. And you knock on their door. And you tell them, what do I do to make this right? I blew this. I, I didn't research. I thought this is what so-and-so said. And I took it at face value. And I didn't even call and ask you about it. And I'm so sorry. He did just that. Knocked on the door. They wouldn't answer the door. Yelled out through the door, go away. He called me. Well, now what do I do? I say, you keep doing it. You call them. You text them. You make this right. You stand before anyone that you stood in front of and said that. And you say, I misappropriated that. I didn't lie on purpose but I just didn't research it. Let me tell you where he went into. He went into obscurity, and God deepened him. Wouldn't you rather God deepen you when you're not on the stage than when you are on the stage? Embrace obscurity. It's a beautiful time to develop character and integrity. David has this moment when he's out in this wilderness. He's got this band of raiders, if you will. And he's been out in the you know, out in these fields, living, trying to keep from Saul's army killing him, constantly evading their pursuits against him. In this one particular season, there was this rich, wealthy man named Nepal, Nepal. And he had large flocks, large flocks of animals. He's very wealthy. And there came this moment where David needed to feed his men. So he sent a messenger to Nepal and said, hey, listen, we've camped out in your fields. We've never stolen from you. Would you be so kind as to prepare a meal for us? We're hungry. And it's a celebratory time. You know, the Israelites had these celebratory moments. He said, and so for this particular feast, would you mind if uh, preparing us that or letting us have some of your sheep to have a meal? Paul got the message and he said, who are you? I don't have to give you nothing. Sent that message back and disrespected David. David told his men, grab your swords, let's go. Because we have been honorable not taken from this man when we could have. And now he's going to dishonor us 
and not be kind to us? He said, far be it if he's still alive by the end of the day. And they, they jump on their horses and they start heading towards Nepal's house. Well, this dude wasn't too stupid because he married a beautiful woman who was wise named Abigail. Yeah. And when she heard about, when the servants told her, hey, by the way, our master has done this. And this is what's about to happen. She said, prepare everything you can, follow me. And she jumps on her donkey and she rides out to meet David. And she gets off her horse. And she says, dear sir. The Bible says she bows low. And she says, my husband is an idiot. Please do not kill him. Or me, or all of our workers, or all of the people that we love. Please, sir, have mercy. And do not, and then she pulls on this one truth. She goes, for we all know that one day you will be king. And if you, if you do this now, you lack integrity and character. And it will affect your leadership and your rulership when you're king. See, some of you have not gotten to where God wants to take you because you've lacked character and integrity when no one's around. When you had an opportunity, you took it. You took the shortcut instead of walking in character and integrity. You told a half-truth. You manipulated to get that person fired. You took that thing from the job that was not yours. You did these things and that caused there's a lack of character and integrity and you haven't made that right. And so God is saying, I really want to put you on the throne. But if I do, there are people who know about that. You don't even know who knows about it. You've not made that right. And as a result, that will come out to haunt you the moment I put you in the place that I've, that I've prepared for you. And you and I must understand that obscurity is this beautiful place where God can speak that to us. He can work that out of us. And we don't have to have the whole world looking at our brokenness because all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. None of us completely look like, act like, and, and live like Jesus yet. We're all becoming transformed into his image in a little bit at a time. And if you want to deepen your character and integrity, ask the Lord, say, Lord, where do I lack character and integrity? Because I know you want to use me. I know you want to empower me. I know that you have a plan because his promises for you are yes and amen. He has beautiful plans and purposes, but they're being negated because you and I don't have faith, because you and I have lack of character and integrity. They're getting held up and we're stuck in this forward momentum that God has for us. We're getting stuck in obscurity. And then we're mad at God. Why have you done this? Why have you abandoned me? Why am I in a dark place? And God's saying, I'm trying to operate on you. I'm trying to get you free from this. But you won't let me. You keep running away from me. You keep pushing me away. And then you're stuck in these dark times. And you're like, I don't understand why. Well, I want to tell you why. It's because you and I are becoming like him. And the only way to become like him is for him to work in us. So he can then work through us. Are you there? Say yes. Here's the third big thing that you got to press towards. Come on, y'all not listening fast enough, so we're running late on time. Mansfield campus is getting nervous. Number three, secure the divine friendships. Obscurity gives you an opportunity to secure the divine friendships. I spoke on this a little bit. I touched on this a couple weeks back. There are friendships that were created for you to go through adversity with you. God has put people alive on the planet that are your, if you will, partners in purpose. How are you going to know who's really there, who really loves you, and who really has your back when you're popular? Celebrities say all the time, I'm lonely. Because I don't know who wants to be my friend before, what they can get from me, and who loves me for me. 
Obscurity gives you the opportunity to develop friendships and deep relationships. Why do you think I'm constantly asking you to connect in a small group? It's not a program for us. I need you to have the kind of friends that the moment that God elevates you, they're still standing beside you. The moment that you get knocked down, they're there picking you up, saying, I love you. I knew you when you didn't have a penny in your pocket. I knew you. I was there with you when you didn't even, couldn't even keep your marriage together, and we prayed that thing through, and you humbled yourself. I was there with you, walking that through with you. David had this group called David's Mighty Men. They were the discontent. They're the ones that came out with him when nobody else cared about him, when everybody else had thrown him aside, and they stayed with him. They went through that wilderness experience with him, and the moment he became king, can I tell you something? They all became princes. Every one of them became governors, and they had all this favor, and then God spoke to David, and David said, I'm going to build a temple for my God. We need some money to do it, and so David gave half of everything he had, and he looked over at the mighty men, and they said, oh, we're going to outgive you. Can I tell you something? When the people of Israel saw that David and the mighty men of valor began to give all that they had for the raising of God's temple so there would be a place to worship the living God, they said, if David will do it and the mighty men will do it, then we'll do it. And they began to bring everything they had, and David had to stop them at some point and say, we got too much money. Stop bringing everything. Let us build the temple of the Lord because we have more than enough. Can I tell you something? When you get there, who will be there with you? Who will be standing there with you? Who will be able to rejoice with you? Who knows you? And says, listen, you're getting haughty again. You're getting cocky again. Come on, remember that. We went through that 10 years ago. Come on now. You all need those divine relationships and friendships. I got them. I'm going to tell you right now, I'm ready. God, God can make, he can make me present tomorrow. And I got the right people around me that I trust. And I know we may not be the smartest people, but we're going to get it done because we got each other's back. Do you have that? Have you developed that? You don't have it? And so that's why God can't really move you in to those things that he has for you. Because you won't be able to stand when the waves come, boom, 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 boom. Because we need each other. Standing beside each other, holding on to each other. Here's a fourth and final piece that you and I need to press towards when we're in obscurity. And that is ministering to whomever is in front of you. I watch people do this all the time, especially if they graduated from Bible school. They keep looking for, one day I'm going to have a ministry. You have a ministry. You have a co-worker who doesn't know Jesus. One day, God said I was going to do this. When I was gonna. You have a neighbor next door who does not know Jesus Christ as Lord. I'm going to be a missionary one day. I'm one day. One day. One day is today. But yeah, but one day I'm going to be great. I'm going to be known. Everyone's going to be following me. Listen, you got five people following you on Facebook? Minister to them. Because let me tell you something. If you won't minister to five, you won't minister to five million any better. Minister to what's in front of you. Minister. Hebrews 13, 2. It says, and do not forget to be kind to strangers. For some... Who have done this have entertained angels without realizing it. He's teaching a principle there in Hebrews. You have no idea who you're loving on right now. You have no idea. That's probably the story for Mr. Don Crouch. Anybody know the man Don Crouch? Not Andre Crouch. Don Crouch. Not too many of you know who Don Crouch is. Don Crouch was a university professor. He's a good man. He didn't have that many accolades, just served out his tenure, and then he retired. He retired into a little small county in Michigan, kind of a poor rural area, and he retired to that area, and because he was bored, he started teaching at the local high school, a lot of under, underprivileged kids. And he met this one particular kid, he started teaching English. And he met this one particular kid that uh, had a stuttering problem, and Don Crouch did the best he could to talk to him, but the, the young man would never talk out because he stuttered so bad. And it came time to write poetry and study poems. Don began to get the whole class to write poems. 
And this young man wrote a poem. I think it was an ode to an avocado. Is that what it was, Jamie? Ode to a grapefruit. When the teacher, Don Crouch, read it, he gave him an F. He said, there's no way you wrote this. It's way beyond your capabilities. You can't even speak. The young man said, I absolutely, absolutely wrote it. He said, no, you did not. He said, if you wrote it, then I want, did this in front of the whole class. If you wrote it, then stand up and recite it. The young man with a stuttering problem, who everyone's always laughed at from junior high days, it made the young man so mad that he stood up and he recited it perfectly because, see, Don had realized when the young man read poetry, he didn't stutter one bit at all. And that young man stood up and he quoted it with fire and passion and anger at this teacher, this wise teacher. Most of us have never heard of Don Crouch, but we've all heard of that young man. You know him as James Earl Jones. Minister to what's in front of you. I'm sure that man had dreams of being somebody great one day. And after he retired, he's looking around like, what am I going to do with my life? I didn't accomplish the big dreams that I had. I got a decent salary. I got a nice little house. But now I'm in retirement mode. What am I going to do? So he goes to the school up the street that doesn't have that many good teachers. And he begins to pour his life into a few kids that everyone else wouldn't value. And in the midst of those kids was a man by the name of James Earl Jones. When interviewed later in years, James Earl Jones was asked, who helped you get where you are today? Who's your mentors? He said, well, my grandparents, number one. And number two, the man who changed my life, Mr. Don Crouch. See, if you reject obscurity and what's right in front of you, you will miss the divine plan that God has because you're constantly looking for something better. I don't know the prophecies over your life. I don't know the dreams that you have. But I know this. If you will start with what's right in front of you and love what's right in front of you, care for what's right in front of you, those dreams will come to pass. The Bible says in due season. Would you stand with me? Hey guys, wasn't that a great word today? You know, I'm so thankful that the word isn't limited to a Sunday morning at a certain time or the four walls of the church building, but it can go through whatever time you may be watching this, wherever venue you might be at. The word of God can minister to you no matter where you are. You know, if you're interested in partnering with what Church on the Hill is doing, not only locally, but globally, you say, I really want to invest with that, with Church on the Hill in advancing kingdom business. And you can do so by partnering with us by sending a donation to P.O. Box 3815. Cedar Hill, Texas, 75106. Hey guys, we love you. We look forward to seeing you again.